In his lifetime, Salvador Dali, the great Catalan surrealist painter, perhaps best known for the persistence of memory and melted clocks, created over 1,500 paintings. That's in addition to his work in other media, including sculptures and book illustrations, theater set design, and drawings. Pablo Picasso, himself no slouch, called Dali an outboard motor that's always running. It's no surprise then that Dali is quoted as saying, no masterpiece has ever come from a lazy artist. You don't get that much work done by sitting around hoping to find your groove or waiting for inspiration. You get it done by starting, by doing. And the astonishing thing is that the more you do, the better it becomes, the more it gets mistaken for having been inspired in the first place. That one reality is also very comforting, and it's what keeps me going some days. Our job is not to make masterpieces in whatever discipline we pursue, but to do the work that will one day bring us closer to mastery. By definition, only masters create masterpieces. In addition to being so prolific, Dali is known for being extremely innovative. I don't know if that's even the right word for what he did. I mean, Dali was beyond original or authentic, though he was those two. He was just way out in the middle of his own thing. Does it surprise you to hear then that he once said, those who do not want to imitate anything produce nothing? I think he was pointing to one of the things that paralyzes any of us in our desire to make or create whatever art is ours, the desire to be original. Far from being a catalyst for great work, it can be the reason for no work at all. I'm David Dusheman, and this is episode 35 of A Beautiful Anarchy, my mostly weekly podcast about the creative life and the joys and obstacles we experience while living it. What's Dali got to do with that? Let's talk about it. In episode 33 of A Beautiful Anarchy, I discussed another prolific creator, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And if you missed that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Goethe might just be one of our best guides to beginning and to getting shit done. I don't want to cover that ground again, but I do want to take another look at the idea of starting from another angle. Not only because my new book, Start Ugly, is now out, and I would be very pleased to know that you're reading it and it's helping you take whatever next steps are needed in your creative life right now, and not only as a way to remind you that it can be found in PDF, Kindle, and printed editions at startuglybook.com. But because, hey, book or no book, starting is one of the hardest hurdles we face in art making, or the making of anything, no matter what you call it. And I want to give you three really good reasons to begin whatever it is you do more often and sooner, and to let those starts be as ugly as they need to be. One of the enduring stories from my childhood was Hans Christian Andersen's Ugly Duckling. A mother duck hatches a brood of eggs only to discover that one of them is much, much uglier than the others. A duckling so ugly, in fact, it's teased and ostracized and eventually runs away. He finds a home with wild ducks and geese until, in true Hans Christian Andersen tradition, it goes horribly awry and those wild birds get slaughtered by hunters. Cheerful guy, that Mr. Anderson. The duckling then finds shelter with an old woman whose cat and hen tease the ugly little bird, revealing the first moral of the story, presumably that animals can be assholes too. Eventually, the duckling spends a winter on his own, emerging in the spring to join a group of swans who, for the first time, do not recoil at his ugly mug, 
but accept him as though they had no reason to do otherwise, which, upon seeing his reflection in the water, the presumed duckling, now a beautiful swan, learns is exactly the case. There are lessons aplenty in that story, not the least of which is that we judge things to be ugly only by whether they meet or fall short of our expectations. Expect a swan to look like a duck, and it's not going to be pretty. I think the other lesson, at least the one I took from the story as a kid, was that what something is in the beginning does not determine what it is in the end. Anderson seems to be telling us that there is potential in ugly, and that's the first reason I think we need to embrace starting ugly and embrace it as often as possible. It is the recognizing, collecting, and nurturing of possibilities. And anyone who has spent any time in creative work knows that possibilities are everything. The more we start things with initially tentative and ugly steps and phases, the more we learn to see past the duckling and see the potential, the more comfortable we become with ugly because ugly is needed. Ugly is potential. Ugly gets us comfortable in our own skin and makes us suspicious of the perfect and closer to the process of refining and more quickly realizing that once hidden potential. The second reason I think we need to start ugly and start often is that the more apparently ugly things we begin and refine, the more we refine our skills and our ability to think creatively, look obliquely at problems, and step closer, slowly, day by day, to mastery. Creative people, especially those who identify with the idea of making, you know, art with a capital A, tend to focus on quality over quantity. And it's hard to argue with the desire for excellence, but like so much in life, it is not one or the other. In fact, one seems to be the path to the other if we're open to it. In the very excellent book, Art and Fear by Ted Orland and David Bale, the story is told of a pottery teacher who one year splits her class in two. Half of the students are told that their final grade will be determined by how many pieces they make over the year. The other half is told they'll be graded on one final piece submitted before the year is over. And at the end of the year, it was the students who had created the most work who also created the best work. The lesson seems very clear to me. We learn the skills of craft and art and creative thinking only by doing. And that doing always begins rough, unrefined, and ugly. But it's only in making a good many ugly things that gives us the skills to later make more beautiful and refined things. If we fear ugly starts, we start less often and lean toward the easy stuff, the stuff we're already comfortable with, and that only sabotages progress and the learning that leads to the eventual mastery of technique and tool that alone can lead to masterpieces. Unlike the duckling, we do not grow into a swan merely by waiting out the ugly phase, but by embracing it and learning everything we can from it and by doing the work. Lots of work. Finally, the more things you begin and refine, the more you will recognize your own way of doing things, your own rhythms, your own rituals, your own demons and haunting voices too. And the more you understand what works for you and what doesn't, the sooner you can get to flow which is where the refinement of ugly takes place and things begin to find their best expression and you find your way out of the rut and into the groove. That's where we're all trying to get to, to flow, to the groove, to the place where the ugly first efforts are behind us and we are seeing the angel emerge from the block of stone 
the way Michelangelo did as he carved. But remember, he too had his ugly beginnings. When he carved his own masterpiece, David, he started with a dirty, twice-rejected block of marble from Carrara in Tuscany, Italy. I spent an afternoon in Carrara nine years ago. That same day ended for me in an Italian hospital with shattered feet, being told I would never walk the same way again. The doctor told me I'd always walk with a limp, but because I would be forever limping with both feet, it wouldn't look like a limp. He didn't elaborate or tell me what it would look like, and to this day I wonder what that meant. Was it a riddle, some kind of zen cone to be meditated upon? Would I saunter, sachet perhaps, maybe a swagger? We're getting off point here, but before my gait was so permanently transformed later that night in Pisa, I wandered around the Carrara quarries basically trespassing, except that the man that brought me there was a cop, so it felt like there was a certain legitimacy to my presence. And I can tell you this, I saw no trace of Michelangelo's angel, or David, just big chunks of unremarkable white rock, rough and dirty. I think it must take a hell of a lot of vision to see the angel in the marble, but also a willingness to start ugly and to allow that process to remain ugly for a while. It took Michelangelo more than two years to finish David. But what is so seldom told is how David started, almost 50 years before, with its commission given to another artist, Agostino Di Duccio, who roughed things out on and off for a couple years before he just gave up. The marble was then given to Antonio Rossolino, who was fired shortly thereafter for reasons now lost to time. And then the roughed-out marble just sat for 26 years, neglected in the yard of the cathedral workshop in Florence, until Michelangelo beat out Leonardo da Vinci for the honor of completing it, which he did in 1504. David now stands astonishingly beautiful in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence, where thousands of visitors a day either giggle at his tiny man parts or gape at him in awe and wonder, depending on their age. It is almost impossible to imagine him now as just a large block of dirty stone, much bigger than his finished six tons. But his start, and even much of the process to create the wonder that he became, was as ugly as anything you or I will ever put our hand to. Returning somewhat belatedly to my point, Michelangelo started ugly, just like we do. And not just in making David or the Sistine Chapel, but in becoming Michelangelo. He learned his craft as we do. Earlier efforts gave way to growing mastery and eventually to the extraordinary skill and artistry he became known for. If anyone has ever found his groove, it was him. But despite his reputation for natural genius, he still maintained, quote, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. He also said, there is no greater harm than that of time wasted. So I'm guessing he would be on board with Goethe's encouragement to get going on things now and not later. To start. That's also where Michelangelo is joined by Dali, the idea that mastery is achieved by hard work. It does not present itself, either in the art or the artist who makes it, as though it were spoken into existence and just arrived polished and complete. No painting was ever created without first being a canvas of tremendous potential for either great beauty or astonishing mediocrity. The same is true of every book or sculpture, every movie, song, or business idea. True, they finish differently, and there's probably a lifetime of conversations to be had about how we navigate the messy middle of a project or the decision to call it done and sign our names to it. 
but you won't get to that point at all if you don't start ugly and often and do the hard work to learn not only your craft, but your craft done your way to discover your own voice, your own process and rhythms, and your own reliable path to getting to flow. It has been said by voices with more credibility and experience than mine, but I'm going to echo it. Creativity is not a talent. It is a work ethic. That will either scare you away or it will give you hope. I'm among those to whom it gives hope. It means my work is not up to the muses or to my DNA about which I can do nothing. It's not a kind of magic to which I need to find a secret key. It is a result of starting ugly and starting often and seeing where those starts take me learning from them, and getting ever closer to not only the best work of my life, but to becoming the worker that will create the best work of my life. Want to get out of your rut and into your groove? Do more work. Do work that challenges you. Usually that's the stuff that starts even uglier than what you've been doing. Be suspicious of the work that starts easy. Sometimes it does, and that's a gift, but most of the time the easy stuff, it's only easy because you've done it before. The longer I do this, the more sure I am that Hans Christian Andersen was onto something. The more sure I am that he wasn't really talking about ducks and swans, and that there's something incredible about the potential of the creative process to transform dubious, unattractive, hesitant starts into something so much bigger. And the more protective I become of anything that helps me start my work, ugly or otherwise, as often as possible. The more I start, the more opportunities I have to experience that transformation. It's made me take ideas like flow more seriously, because there are things you can do to get there, to flow, more reliably. I've become more protective of the habit and ritual that help make those starts automatic and less an option to me. And I've stopped listening to the voices that once discouraged my creative efforts and thinking, by pointing out how ugly, unrefined, speculative, or half-baked they are. The voices are still there, don't get me wrong. They still natter at me and point out the ugly. But now I nod my head and smile, knowing those voices are right. The initial beginnings are always ugly, but it's only as I keep working that they get less so, and the angel begins to appear ever so slowly from the ugly rock from which it's hewn. Want to explore the idea of starting ugly and starting often as the unexpected path to everyday creativity? Do you love this podcast and want to support it or be able to curl up with these ideas without having to spend more time online or with a device? Not to be too subtle about it, but both my new books, Start Ugly and The Problem with Muses, are available now in PDF, Kindle, or paperback editions at startuglybook.com. Or in the case of Kindle or the paperback, directly from Amazon, and I would be so grateful if you would consider adding them to your collection of resources from which you find inspiration and light for your creative life, and sharing them with those with whom you live, work, and create. As always, thank you for the incredible privilege of being part of your creative journey. If there's something about that journey you'd like to share with me, you can always reach me by email, and you can get me at talkback at abeautifulanarchy.com. We'll talk again soon. Until then. Go make something beautiful.